but the song is very appropriate to the message. And um, this is not the way that I had imagined starting this off, but I think it's the way I'm going to because of the, of the connection to the song. I want to read to you a passage of Scripture from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. <clears throat> the call of God to His people, the call to holiness, has a very close connection to purity, um, particularly a close connection to sexual purity. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, <clears throat> we'll be looking at verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now understand that here, when Paul is talking about sanctification, he is not talking about what we refer to as the doctrine of, of entire sanctification or second blessing holiness. Here he's talking about just sanctification. Everybody, all of us. Now we're all called to, to the second aspect of sanctification as well, but but here he's talking about sanctification as a whole. This is the will of God, your sanctification, your set-apartness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. As I said a moment ago, the call of God upon His people to holiness uh, is one that has a close connection to sexual purity. And hopefully this morning we can begin to answer or explain why that is. We've been talking about big questions that need big answers. And uh, I suppose uh, last Sunday I should have changed uh, the subtitle to this. We were uh, working with the subtitle of Bible Difficulties. Now, uh, starting last Sunday, we talked about politics and Christians' involvement in, in politics. Um, and uh, today, uh, I want to begin talking to you uh, about sexuality and gender confusion under this subtitle, When the Bible and Culture collides, when the Bible and culture collides. One of the things that we might ask as we sit here in this lovely sanctuary with the stained glass windows and, and uh, the nice pews, the, the comfort that we enjoy, and all of us, I assume, feeling as if we belong here. We belong in the church. We are Christians. We are saints. We are God's set-apart ones. The question might be asked, do we really need to talk about this? 
There may be some wondering, Pastor, do we really need to talk about sexuality and gender confusion in this setting, in this place? And I would say to you, uh, yes, obviously, I believe we need to talk about it because here we are. You know, these issues are addressed clearly in Scripture, as we already read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's something that Jesus spoke to us about. It's something that the Apostle Paul, he writes very clearly about to numerous of the churches where he ministered, to the Corinthian church, to the church at Thessalonica, also to the church at Ephesus. All of these places he spoke to them uh, about sexual purity and uh, conversely sexual immorality. And we might ask, Pastor, don't Christians know these things? You know, weren't these people, this was a church Paul was writing to. But we have to understand that those people would not have necessarily understood really much of anything about sexual purity the way we do from our perspective. You see, if you study the culture of the people Paul was writing to, both in, in uh, the church at Thessalonica, the, the, the passage that we just read to you, then also the church at Ephesus, also the church at Corinth, you will find by studying those cultures that Paul was, was raising a standard of purity and morality that was totally foreign to the people in these societies. <clears throat> if you know much, if you have paid attention, uh, you don't have to listen or, or watch much television or radio. You can simply drive down the road. Um, and see that nowadays we again live in a society where sexual purity and morality is by and large a foreign concept to most people. We now live in a world that is saturated with messages about sexuality and gender uh, that are, are coming from a totally secular, completely godless point of view. And in a world that is saturated with the ungodly and the sinful and the humanist, God help us if the church is silent on these issues. We need to know where we stand and we need to know where, uh, what, what we believe about these things. <clears throat> I'm sure you get weary with my disclaimers, but uh, I am an over-explainer, as I'm sure you've learned by now. And lest anybody misunderstand, I, I am not advocating uh, that we demonize anybody, any people group, uh, any, uh, anyone that identifies a certain way. Um, I'm not advocating that at all. There's been too much of that in the church. So much so that, well, I think I've told you this story before, but it, it, it will be fitting here. God had to do some serious work in my own heart to convict me about my attitude uh, towards people that struggle with same-sex attraction. I was sitting with uh, my oldest son a number of years ago, and we observed uh, someone who was obviously very 
flamboyantly uh, of a homosexual persuasion. And my initial gut reaction, also the same thing that came out of my mouth in front of my son, was, oh, yuck. And very quickly, the Holy Spirit brought me up short and made me realize that my I don't know, he was maybe 10, 12 years old at the time, was, was sitting nearby and had observed the same thing I had observed, and he had heard my words, and I backed up and stopped and asked the Lord to forgive me, and then I spoke with my son and asked him to forgive me, and I said, son, someday there might be a time when someone that looks like that might come in the door of our church. Now, quite honestly, friends, God forgive us and God help us because that so seldom happens. Because people that live as a part of that community, quite honestly, they don't feel welcome in churches like ours. And that is a sad and tragic reality that we live with. But I told my son on that occasion, I said, if that were to ever happen, I would want to be able to reach out my hand and shake their hand and make them welcome and say, we are glad you're here. <clears throat> so, that's the disclaimer. So I hope you understand. For some reason, also sadly, tragically, in our society because certain lifestyles have come so much to the forefront, the heterosexual sins are not so much talked about. But friends, can, can we just all pause for a moment and agree that they're no less worse? Any form of sexual immorality, any kind, whether it be of a, uh, uh, of a straight nature or a gay nature, any, it's all sin in God's eyes. Amen. I knew this would not be comfortable, and that's okay. That's all right. Confusion about sexuality and uh, is, is nothing new. We may think sometimes that we live in a day and age that would win the prize when it comes to the immorality of our culture, but that would be far from the truth. If you studied, studied anything about ancient history, you know this for yourself. In the Roman Empire, it was said women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. Immorality of that kind was rampant. In Greece, immorality was, was blatant. It was not anything that anybody was ashamed of. De Demosthenes wrote, We keep prostitutes for our pleasure, we keep mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs of the body, and we keep wives for the begetting of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. That was the normal, expected behavior of the morals of the people of that day. So, friends, you see, when you read and do a little bit of background research, we, our, our culture in our day, we don't have any corner on immorality regarding homosexuality. This was rampant in Greek and Roman culture. Plato's dialogue, the Symposium, has been said to be one of the greatest works on love in the world. And I did not know this, but recently found it out. Sadly, this, the topic, 
of his writing is not the love between a man and a woman. Fourteen out of the first 15 Roman emperors were active homosexuals. Barclay, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, says we can scarcely realize how riddled the ancient world was with homosexuality. I did not realize this, but I also found out that transgenderism is something that seems to have existed for long numbers of years also. We've gone through periodic times when, when these behaviors and what some would call lifestyle choices have been considered private matters. They were kept hidden if they were part of a person's life. They weren't something that, were, that was just bandied about and everybody knew about, but it was, as we used to say, in the closet. But now we again live in a society where these behaviors have uh, not just been sought to be normalized, but they're, they're being encouraged. Of particular concern is the gender confusion. I did this just the other day. You can do it for yourself. If you Google or whatever search engine you use, how many genders there are? Now, that's an easy question to answer, isn't there? How many genders are there? There's two, right? If you Google that, you will find that professionals nowadays are saying there are 72 recognized genders. Our world is crazy. And people, if we don't know, if we don't understand the truth about these matters, not just what we believe to be truth, but the, the foundational objective truth about these matters, then God help us. We, we cannot live in this world where this kind of thing is, is so widely circulated and spout off our ideas and our beliefs without any basis of support for why we believe what we believe. People will say, oh, you're just, you're just a homophobe, you know, you're just, you know, you're just whatever, all these criticisms and these words. Sadly, what we're hearing more and more about is that parents who think they're doing, they think they're doing their children a favor, uh, the, the more liberal-minded parent often, they're raising their children to be gender-neutral and giving them gender-neutral names so that they can decide for themselves what they are when, whenever they figure that out for themselves. <clears throat> Where does this confusion come from? Occasionally, we haven't done it for a while, but occasionally at our house we play a, a, a 20 questions game. I don't know if any of you have ever played 20 questions, but we, you would have, you know, whoever is going to be the, whoever is going to be it leaves the room and then you decide what the answer is going to be. And usually we try to do something from the Bible. We'll pick a, a topic or a person, some Bible character or whatever, and we'll say that's going to be the answer. And then the person that's it comes back in and they start asking questions. They have 20 questions to figure out what 
the, the person was, what the topic was. So they might ask some, and, and they're supposed to be questions that can be answered with a yes or a no. So they might say, is this somebody from the Old Testament? And you'd say, yes or no, no. And then, okay, they know then it's not somebody from the Old Testament, somebody from the New Testament. And then by a process of elimination, you know, that's how you play the game, and they figure out the answer. We, we live in a world where not only do people not know who they are, they don't even know what questions to ask to, to start trying to figure it out. Prior to the mid-1800s, Sexuality was understood strictly as behavior and not as identity, not as essential to a person's identity. Now, hang with me for a little bit because this might be tedious for a few moments. In the mid-1800s, two forms of philosophy and schools of thought emerged in Europe. The first, Romanticism highly influential in the realm of literature and art. Um, as, a, as a philosophy, Romanticism placed a strong emphasis on emotion and individualism. Emotion and individualism. The second was existentialism, which is a form of philosophical inquiry that explores the problem of existence and centers on the subjective experience of thinking feeling, and active, and, and acting. Let me pause here just for a moment. You understand the difference between subjective and objective. Objective means you have is something concrete. You have a, a firm foundation for, for stating uh, what, you, what you believe or, or what truth is. Subjective means it's, it's subject to your feelings or to your circumstances, and it's not, it's not concrete. So, in existentialism, there is a heavy emphasis on personal freedom, and the highest virtue is authenticity. Authenticity. So, these two schools of thought, romanticism and existentialism, these two combined began to exert a strong influence on society to the point that there, uh, people began to believe there's no objective basis from which humanity derives our sense of identity who I am, what I am as a person, but rather our experience is the God of our age, and people, by and large, allow emotions and desires to dictate their sense of identity. In other words, what I feel is who I am. What I feel like is who I am. The result of this is what we see all around us today. It is a culture that is rampant with sexual sin of every kind. And as I mentioned a moment ago, I don't want to pick on just one, but from, from you know, it, I remember some time ago first hearing the phrase LGBT, which stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual or transgender and if you know have you noticed that letters keep getting added to that and it keeps getting longer and longer and longer 
people in our world, especially young people in our world, don't know who or what they are anymore. Scarcely know what it means to be human. In any type of sexual immorality that is given freedom to run its course is based on this idea of if it feels good, do it. It feels right. It's what I am. It's who I am. So question, who am I really? Who am I really? Answering this question is crucial if we are to have a firm foundation on which to build our lives and our character, who we are and who and what we ought to be. If who I am is what I feel like I am, then we have no reliable basis for our, for our sense of identity and no clear direction for our morals, why we ought to be or do anything if it's all based on feeling. I'm going to bypass this just because it's too uncomfortable. Something that was recently in the news. However, if there's an objective basis for who we are as people, in other words, who I am, what my identity is, is not based on what I feel like I am. It's not even based on behavior that has grown out of what I feel like I am. But there is a, an objective standard, a basis that explains who I am. If that's the case, then we have our basis in the, the sanctity, the sacredness of who God is. That's the direction that we're going. I want to take you the remainder of our time together, and we'll try to move through this quickly. Genesis chapter 1, the very first pages of our Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Before I read these uh, verses to you, I want to share that most of my, uh, a lot of my material is inspired uh, and uh, uh, some borrowed from, just, just to give credit where credit is due, uh, a book written by a man named Christopher Yuan, and uh, the title of that book is Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. If you have any struggle or you know someone who has a struggle along these lines, I would highly recommend this book as a resource to you. If you would like more information, you can see me uh, about that, and I can let you know where you can find that. Genesis chapter, 20, or chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Who we are, friends, is not based on what we feel. 
Neither is it based on behavior that grows out of what we feel. But who we are is based on the fact that we are created in the image of God. There are four things that I want to point out to you about the image of God from Genesis chapter 1. First of all, the image of God is very good. The image of God is very good. If you read throughout the creation account, you can read various places. Verse uh, 10 of Genesis chapter 1, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25. It's almost as if God does a little bit of work and then he steps back to look at what he has done. And God said, it is good. It is good. It reads that way throughout the chapter until we come to Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And after the crowning act of God's creation, when God made Adam and Eve and he created them in his own image, and he steps back to take a look at them, he says, it is very good. It is very good. Now, we ought to understand that this is not so much about aesthetics or being pleasing to look at, though I'm certain that's a part of it, but it, it has more to do with goodness of purpose. God created humanity uh, for a goodness of purpose, a goodness of design. He created them for a good purpose. Now, prior to the fall, Adam and Eve lived in involuntary obedience to the perfect will of God, and they walked and talked together with God. Yet when they listened to the temptation of the serpent and disobeyed God, sin and sinfulness became a curse upon all of creation. However, what we need to understand is that the image of God in humanity was not destroyed totally, but only distorted. Let me say that again because it's important to our foundation about this issue. The image of God in humanity was not destroyed, but only distorted. You see, friends, sin and its results are secondary to our identity. They are not essential parts of our identity. Can you just let that sink in? Some of you may need to write that down and take it home with you and mull that over. Sin and its results are not essential to our identity. They are secondary to our identity. It's something that has been added to or, or a corruption of the original design. Yes, sin is universal. The scripture tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But it is not the essential defining factor of who we are as people. Regardless of age, gender, or race, or ethnicity, regardless of if a person is a Christian or not, whether or not a person is in submission to the will of God, uh, whether they're secure in their identity or confused about their identity or their gender or their sexual persuasion, Everyone is created in the image of God, and though distorted, those marks are still present in the life of every man, woman, boy, and girl that lives this morning. 
This is why, friends, it is essential that we understand and that we remember that every single person, no matter the way they dress, no matter, no matter whether it looks like they are conforming to our ideal uh, of uh, what masculinity or femininity ought to be, whether or not they belong to a church or whether they even name the name of Christ, every single individual is worthy of being treated with dignity and respect and kindness and the love of Jesus Christ. Because, friends, the image of God is an inherent, essential part of who we are as humans. Yes, it's distorted. Yes, we've been marred and broken and damaged by sin. But every one of us still bears the marks, the fingerprints of God on our lives, if you will. The image of God is very good. Secondly, the image of God is unique. Only humans were made in the image of God. Again, if you read through the creation account, Genesis chapter 1, verses 11, verse 21, verse 24, and verse 25, you read there how plants and animals were created by God according to their kinds. That's a phrase that you see repeated, according to their kinds, according to their kinds. But when he got around to making humanity, to creating Adam and Eve, our first parents, God did something completely different and completely unique from all of the rest of creation. He created man in his own image and in his own likeness. We are not just a higher form or a more evolved form of animal life. There is something totally and completely unique about who we are. Yes, I know we share some common traits with certain of the animal kingdom. I understand that. But there is something unique in the heart and in the life and in the soul of every man, woman, boy, and girl that does not exist anywhere else in creation, and that is that we are created, we are made in the image of God. In the past, certain people who have studied and researched such things have tried to justify same-sex attraction and relationships because it's something that occurs naturally in the animal kingdom. I don't know whether or not you knew that, but it is. However you want to look at that, at the cause of that, can I just say, friends, that using that as a defense is totally invalid and totally false. You see, friends, we are not animals, and neither should we take our moral cues from animals. God help us. We are created in the image of God and created completely unique. Third, the image of God is differentiated. What does that mean, Pastor? Differentiated. There are numbers of places in Genesis 1, verses 4 through 10, where, there is, where God takes one thing and differentiates it. He makes it two. Uh, verse 4, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. It's the first example. Then there was evening, and there was morning the first day. 
God takes one thing and differentiates it. He, he kind of makes it two. You know, we sometimes use the phrase two sides of the same coin. There's one thing, but it has two sides. They're, they're, they're unique, they're different. Just quickly go through this list. He does it with light and darkness, day and night, evening and morning, the waters and the heavens, the land and the sea. And we see all of this throughout these verses. And then again, God does something very similar when he comes to Adam and Eve, when he comes to humanity. Genesis 1, verse 27. Now this is very poetic, it's Hebrew poetry. And as I've mentioned to you, Hebrew poetry often takes the place, uh, it comes in the form of parallel lines where the same thing is stated but, and, and repeated but in a different way. And we see that in these three lines in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What I want you to know, friends, and notice this morning, is that in the last two lines of verse 27, the image of God lines up perfectly with male and female. So you see, friends, the fact that humanity is is created in the image of God, this is not to say that God is male or female. Neither is it to say that He is both male and female. You see, with God and His nature and character, God Himself transcends the identity of male and female. He stands outside of and above the polarity of sexual identity or gender identity. But for you and I, as human beings, to fully reflect the image of God requires this differentiation, male and female. And it requires both the male and the female to fully reflect the identity of God. The image of God is differentiated. Finally, this morning, the image of God is Christological. I'll explain that picture in just a moment. The image of God is Christological taking you to the New Testament now in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. We read these words, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. He's talking about the work of Jesus Christ. Then again, those verses that we read to you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. So we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but unto holiness." 
Therefore, whoever disregards this does, uh, does not disregard man, but disregards God who gave his Holy Spirit. And we might look at some of these demands of Scripture and say, Pastor, how is it possible for humanity to live up to these demands of holiness when some of these instincts in people seem to be so strong? And friends, if you've never talked to the person who struggles with same-sex attraction, can I just encourage you, you need to make some friends. In that, in that realm. Learn for yourself that though you may not be able to understand, the struggle is real. I can't understand, I can't understand it, I can't identify with it, but it is a real struggle that some people have. And when you, when you talk with them, they many times will tell you, I have no idea where this comes from. This is just, it seems to be the way I have always been. I feel like I've always wrestled and always struggled with this. Not everybody. And friends, they are, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about condoning or excusing lifestyle choices. I'm talking about us being sympathetic with someone who has a struggle that they don't know how to handle on their own. And if you have a hard time identifying with that, maybe all you need to do is simply think about your own struggles. It might not have been a struggle in that area of your life, but friends, I guarantee you every single one of us has had a struggle at some point in our Christian walk that has hindered us from being everything that God wanted us to be. And we have at times despaired. I know in my own life some of the struggles that I've had, not, not with this issue in particular, but with other issues, I've despaired and I've said, oh, God, I'm never going to be able to get free of this. I'm never going to be able to, to really be everything you want me to be because I can't seem to, to find freedom in this issue, in this way. Yes, friends, the demands are high, but can I just tell you they're not impossible? One more passage of Scripture I want to read to you this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen to this. And such were some of you. Praise God. Do you see what God can do through Jesus Christ with that one, the drunkard, the reviler, the sexually immoral, the homosexual, what, the adulterer, the porno addict, the drug addict, fill in the blank, whatever sin, yeah, however long you want to make that list, God can take that person and forgive them and cleanse them of all of their sins and empower them by His Spirit to be everything that He wants them to be. It is a wonderful possibility and reality of divine grace. Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Praise His name. 
Friends, the image of God which was distorted and damaged and broken in us through the sin of Adam is restored and renewed through Jesus Christ. Praise his name. I've used this illustration before, but it's so fitting here. The little picture uh, that you see there is a, a depiction of what is known. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Kintsugi or Kintsugi uh, pottery. It is a, a Japanese art form whereby they take broken pieces of pottery and put them back together again and glue them back together. And instead of trying to hide and disguise the fractures and the broken places, those broken places are highlighted with gold or silver, or some other kind of precious metal, so that the end result ends up highlighting. The, the brokenness is, is there to see, but it is also in the broken places that a different kind of beauty comes through. And friends, this is exactly what Jesus Christ can do in the life of every sinner, every individual broken and marred by sin. Jesus comes and by the power of God puts us back together and the grace of God shines through those broken areas. And we might say, we might in our own ability and our own power just be so aware of our weakness and our inability to be what God would have us to be. But it is also in those areas that God's grace and God's power is most on display for the world to see. Praise His name. I'm so glad this is a wonderful, wonderful possibility for every man, woman, boy, and girl that's been broken and marred by sin. Praise His name. Let's stand together, please.